Well, I'd like to look with you this morning at the passage we just read from Hosea 11 and focus our thoughts around a wonderful question in verse 8. When God is speaking to his people and he says, How can I give you up? How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? I'd like you to think for a moment, if that's possible, on a Sunday morning. Can you look back over your life, and some of us can look back a lot longer than other people, and think certain things you may have started in your life and you gave up. Things that didn't last very long. As I look back, I can think of uh, a number of things. I think that when I was uh, a lot younger, I used to be into stamp collecting. And the years went by, and I just kind of forgot about it. And now I've got these stamp albums at home that haven't been opened for years and years and years. Just gave up. Maybe it's a hobby. Uh, maybe it's uh, an interest. Maybe it's, oh, I think I'll go on a diet. How long did that last? A few weeks if you're lucky. Maybe a few days. You think, I'm going to go on a diet. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to give up chocolate, whatever it may be. And for the great majority of people, those things don't last very long. We give them up. I'm sure we can look back and we can think of all sorts of things that we, we started. We thought at the time, these look interesting. I'll have a go at this or that'll be good for me. I'll, I'll do that. And yet, sadly or suddenly, we've, we've just given up. I wonder how quickly we give up on people. Maybe we are involved in some kind of teaching. Maybe you're teaching someone to play the piano, teaching someone to swim or whatever it may be, teaching someone a particular sport, and you find that they are just no good at it. And you persevere for a while and you think, I'll, I'll give it a go, see if we can get anywhere, and you're getting absolutely nowhere. The temptation is, what's the point? They'll never play the piano, they'll never kick a football in the right direction or whatever it may be, and so... I'm going to give up. It's just no point in carrying on. And we're living, aren't we, in a day and an age when people give up very quickly on other people with whom they have a relationship. We're living in an age, aren't we, when the numbers of divorce and breakups of relationships of all sorts is probably greater than it's been for a, a, an awful long time. People just say, oh, I, I've had enough of you for whatever reason, a husband, a wife, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a partner, whatever it may be. And they just give up and go off for a, what they consider a newer or a better model and they, they give up. And the heartache and the anguish and the sadness that that kind of thing can cause, the breakup of relationships. What I want us to think about this morning is this. Will God ever give up on us because he's tired of us because we're not living up to expectations because we're not living the kind of life that he wants us to live will he say I've given you so many chances you're not making progress I'm going to give up on you will God ever give up on his people and the answer from scripture and this chapter in particular is a resounding no the message of this chapter is that God cannot and will not give up on his people. He will never abandon them. And what does that mean for you and me? Well, it means that if we're believers this morning, our salvation is safe. 
God will never say to us, oh, sorry, you can't come into heaven because you are not good enough, because we were never good enough in the first place. We only come into heaven because Jesus was good enough and because we have trusted in him. And so we were never good enough to become a Christian. So God will never turn around and say, sorry, you're not good enough to enter heaven. Our salvation is secure. Our eternal relationship with God is safe, sound, and secure. This chapter is one of the boldest in the whole of the Bible in showing us the mind and the heart of God in human terms. It's a very warm chapter. It's one of the most tender chapters, even though it's a strong one, in the whole of, perhaps, the whole of the Bible. In many ways, this chapter is the Old Testament equivalent of the prodigal son chapter in the New Testament. It's about a loving father and a wayward child. It describes God's relationship with Israel as that of a father and as a son. Uh, one commentator put it like this. He said, in this chapter, we have an amazing glimpse of the compassionate heart of God as he cares for his children. So what do we know about the writing of this particular chapter in this book? We know that Hosea was a prophet in 8th century Israel. In fact, he was the only one of the minor prophets to speak to the northern kingdom of Israel. All the others spoke to Judah, the southern kingdom. And he was called to preach to a people who at that time were materially quite comfortable. They were materially quite well off, but they had turned away from God to idols. People who were living quite a well-off, comfortable kind of life under the reign of, of King Uzziah and King Jeroboam, who had been the kings, and they had long, quite prosperous reigns. Things were going quite nicely at that time, and the people had forgotten about the Lord, and they had turned to idols and images of their own creation to worship them. Hosea knew that there was a great threat to the land at that time. He knew that the Assyrian Empire, which was developing and growing, was going to come and was going to destroy that kingdom of Israel because of their disobedience and because of their turning to idols and forsaking of God. And when Hosea was making this prophecy, we are only a few years before the Assyrian army under their kings, Shalmaneser and Sargon, were coming over the whole of the area from, from Assyria, that's modern-day Iraq and Iran there, and they were coming down through, through Syria into Israel, into Judah. They were conquering all before them, and Hosea knew that they were coming to Israel, and God was going to use them to judge his people. But also, Hosea balanced that by his own personal relationship with his wife. And you may well know the story of Hosea and his wife, Gomer. Very sad story. Hosea had married Gomer, and then Gomer left him. She went with other men. She got into a, a dreadful position. And in the end, God told Hosea to go and buy back his wife, who had been unfaithful, left him for others. And he had to go to a slave market and pay the price of a slave to buy his own wife back again. And God told Hosea, you are to do that, and you are to continue loving her. Out of that extremely painful and difficult personal experience, Hosea learnt something of the depths of the love of God 
for a people who had been disobedient, rebellious, gone their own way. And what Hosea had to do when he was understanding the depths of the love of God, he had to preach that and he had to show that to these people and show them that though they had gone after these other gods, these other idols and images, God still loved them deeply and that they could still return to him as he had his wife back so God would have them back. We can see here many parallels between God's relationship with Israel and his relationship with us today. And as we look at this chapter, we can see, I'm going to mention four things in particular we can learn about God. If uh, you like these things, they all begin with the letter C. Let's see how we get on. The first thing we note in this chapter, first verse, is God's call. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. God loved them. That's the message that is central to Hosea. And the word he uses here for love is a very interesting one. It's not the usual word that the Old Testament uses for God's love. Chesed, for those of you that know the Hebrew. This is a different word. This is a word that refers to human love. Uh, the word a man may say to his wife, a wife to a husband, is that human love. And in Hosea, that word is used 19 times, and it's rarely used of God in the rest of the Old Testament. What's Hosea doing? He's reminding them that God loves them just as they love their, their husbands, wives, or whatever it may be. It's human love. And I'm sure that he was referring to that verse that God had spoken way back in Deuteronomy chapter 7 when he was speaking to his people. And he said, it's not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you. It is because the Lord loves you. And if we are Christians this morning, that is true of us. It's not because we are more in number, because we're not. It's not because we are better than anyone else. It's not. It's simply because he loved us. And note, he loved them when they were in Egypt when they were slaves, and all that that entailed. And again, we can see with us, how does God love us? Well, he loved us when we were slaves, not in Egypt, when we were slaves to, to our sin, slaves to our disobedience, slaves from turning to things other than the Lord himself. And Paul tells us about that in that lovely verse in Romans 5. God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The love that God had for the people of Israel is the same love that he shows for us. And the love that began when they and we had no thought of God at all. And we were living our life as if he was not interested in us. And yet he still loved us. And then came that moment when he called us. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. He called them from their slavery to redemption, to freedom, to the promised land of Canaan. He brought them out. He called them. Same is true for us, isn't it? When we become a Christian, God is calling us. How does he do it? Well, usually there are two kinds of ways involved. Not always, because God is sovereign and he can work as he wishes. But usually... 
We first hear about salvation. We hear about the Lord through someone telling us. Maybe a sermon. Maybe a conversation with someone. Maybe reading something on the internet. Or whatever it may be. Someone is giving us information about the gospel somewhere. But then there's that internal thing that happens. When we realize that what we're hearing with our ear is something that is for me personally. And we hear what we call the internal call. When the Holy Spirit is at work and saying, you know, this is for you. You need to trust this Jesus. You need to put your faith in this God and follow him. We hear with our ear, but we believe with our mind and our heart and our will when God calls. So that's the first thing we see about God. He calls his people. The second thing is God's care. His care for his people. Verses 3 and 4. You know, I love these verses. What did he do for the young Israel? The picture we have here is of a parent and a child. And in verses 3 and 4, we can see five specific things that God did for these people. Look at them briefly. What's the first thing he did in verse 3? He taught them to walk. He said, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. What does that mean? He was teaching them to walk in his ways by giving them laws, by giving them commandments. He was saying, this is the way I want you to grow up. I want you to behave. This is how I want you to walk. Now, when you've got um, a young toddler, parents look, don't they, for the first steps the child is going to take. When is the child going to begin to walk by themselves? And there's normally a thrill, isn't it? And normally, if it's a firstborn child, you write it in the book somewhere and say, began to walk at so many months old, and if it's a second or third, those things you tend to forget, don't you? But uh, for the first one in particular, do you know, started walking at 14 months or whatever it may be. It's an important thing, because the child is beginning to show a little bit of independence. They can go a little bit by themselves, and the parent's responsibility is to teach them how to walk safely. As God, I'm sure that when God sees his people beginning to walk, beginning to grow, beginning to trust him and follow him, you can imagine how God rejoices and says, look at them down there. They are my children. They're beginning to walk. They're learning how to go by themselves. They're learning how to follow me. And God rejoices over that. He loves to teach his children how to walk. But secondly, we read at the end of verse 3, that he healed them. When anything was wrong, God was like a doctor to his people. Remember that he's speaking now to this people who were slaves in Egypt. And in Egypt, they had the ten plagues. And those ten plagues afflicted all of Egypt, except the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were living. He kept them from it. And then as they were beginning their journey across the Red Sea towards Canaan, in Exodus 15, verse 26, God says this to them. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. He was the one who was looking after them physically as they were traveling from Egypt towards Canaan, the promised land. He was their protector. The third thing he did, we see that beginning of verse 4, I led them 
with cords of kindness and with the bands of love. What a lovely picture. How was God leading his people? Well, it wasn't with the rough, hard cords that a farmer might use to harness oxen. It wasn't with the, uh, the hooks of a cruel conqueror. It was a loving, gentle cord that was pulling them. The picture I have here now, go back to uh, a child, is of a child with reins. You know when that child just begins to walk, what does a parent do? Put the child on reins. Now, what's that all about? Well, it's about allowing the child to have the freedom to walk because they can now do it. But it's also to protect the child because they can easily fall over and hurt themselves, not aware of dangers, might run off into the road, whatever it may be. So those reins there are giving a freedom to the child to walk, to learn how to grow up, but also being protected, being kept safe, and being kept secure. They're being controlled, controlled lovingly for their own good that they might learn. When you are walking and you're on the pavement, you don't run out into the road because that's dangerous. And they're learning things like that. It's a picture of God having his people on these reins. He's leading them lovingly and gently, leading them with the bands of love that they may learn how to be safe and protected and to go on with him. So he leads us by his spirit with these loving, gentle cords. The fourth thing he did, he said, I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. Now, the picture changes a bit here from a parent to a farmer. It's a picture of a kind farmer. It's a picture of easing their burdens. It's a farmer who eases the yoke on the oxen in order that they might not be too tightly controlled, given a bit more freedom, ease the burden. That remind you of what Jesus said? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. God is no hard taskmaster. He knows how much his people can take. And when he knows they can take no more, he says, stop. I will ease that yoke, that burden, whatever it may be. We read here, he became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. He said, that's enough. I will ease it. I know that you can take no more. And the fifth thing, the end there of verse 4, I bent down to them and fed them. Just like a parent will feed the child. So God gave them all they needed. In the wilderness, they had the manna, they had the quails, they had water from a rock and so on. God made sure that all that they needed was provided. And as we remember in Philippians 4, Paul wrote, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God is feeding his people. He is providing all that they need from his own inexhaustible supply of riches. So we have a lovely picture there of God's care for his people. We could look in more depth at these, but we don't have time. But do we get the picture? There is God teaching them to walk, healing them, leading them with cords of kindness, easing the yoke on their jaws, bending down and feeding them. His care over these people, his care over us. We've had two of the C's, God's call, God's care. The third one, 
not quite so nice in many ways, God's condemnation. We see this in verses 2 and then 5 to 7. Because what we see is God condemns his people because they have turned away from him, disobeyed him, ignored him. And look at some of the details there. Verse 2. I find these verses very sad. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Can you imagine? This is now God's people. Those whom he just read, he's called to be his own. He's loved them. He's cared for them. Made all that provision for them. And yet, here we read, they're turning to idolatry. He has spurned. They have spurned God's love for them. And instead of worshipping the living, all-powerful God, what are they doing? Making something out of their own hands of wood or stone and bowing down and worshipping that. How sad. But it goes on, end of verse 3. They did not know that it was me who was healing them. They were ignorant of God's mercies. They had no interest in, in thanking God. They were ungrateful. And it's easy, isn't it, even for us as Christians to be ungrateful for all that God has done for us. And sometimes if we've been a Christian for a number of years, we can take things for granted and just think, oh, that is the way things are because I'm a Christian. And sometimes we can forget to thank God for all he's done for us, for all he is doing for us, for all he will do for us, for all that he is. Let's not be an ungrateful people. But these people here were not just ungrateful, they were willfully disobedient. Look at the end of verse 5. They have refused to return to me. They were refusing to return, to repent. It was a willful disobedience. Though they were invited and begged by the prophets to do so, to return to God because he loved them and would have them back, they were determined not to. And it's summed up in what I think is one of the saddest verses in the Old Testament, beginning of verse 7. My people are bent on turning away from me. What a description of the people of God. They were determined to turn away from God. Think of a child rebelling against their parents. It happens and it's sad. When a child grows up, and we hear about it quite often, sadly, these days, and a child will say, I don't want any more to do with you, my parents. I'm going to go and do my own thing. I want to live my life. And they cut themselves off from the parents, and they go and do many things that the parents would, would disapprove of. Who is the saddest in that situation? It's the parent, isn't it? It's the parent grieving that the child that they brought up and cared for and loved and provided for is spurning them, turning their back on them, deserting them, going their own way, having nothing more to do with them. And the heart of the parent aches for their lost child. And we see in this chapter that the heart of God is an aching heart as well for his rebellious, disobedient people. How could they have done these things? How could they have turned their back on the one who would love them, redeem them, provided for them, and so on? We can ask ourselves the same question. How can we turn our back 
on the love of God in Jesus Christ for us. The love that sent Jesus to the cross. What was God going to do now about this situation? He condemned them and he had to judge them. And we can see in verses 5 to 7 that God's justice means that punishment must follow. Why is that? They can't get away with their sin and their disobedience. They had to relearn the old lessons from their youth through hardship, slavery, and oppression. But this time, it was not going to be Egypt. It was going to be Assyria, the Assyrian army that was on the march in that area. And in the year 722 BC, round about the time when Hosea finished his public ministry, Samaria, the northern kingdom, fell to the Assyrians and was completely destroyed. I wonder, are you and I ever guilty of rebelling against God and then not repenting, not asking to be forgiven and turning back to him? When we do, like the Israelites, we too deserve God's condemnation because he is of purer eyes than to behold evil. He can't look on iniquity. He can't just turn a blind eye to our sin and our rebellion. And God is not like that. He loves us and he wants us to be walking with him. But that's not the end of the story because we have one more sea to go. We see here a lovely picture of God's compassion for his people. Verses 8 to 11. In these verses, we see a divine pathos. We see a warmth, a tenderness in God's heart. We also see here there's, there's a divine anguish and a tension, as if God is having a debate with himself. Do I show them judgment or do I show them mercy? Listen to this debate that God is having with himself. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? That's another name for Israel. How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admar? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Those were towns that had been destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah early in the book of Genesis. How can I make you like them? For I'm God and not man. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Oh, the divine pathos that we see there. That glimpse into the, the heart of God. Judgment or mercy? See, according to Jewish law in Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 to 21, a rebellious son, which is what Israel was, should be handed to the elders and stoned to death. That is what the law said. What is God going to do now with his rebellious people in this situation? Think of the arguments for a moment. Does he show them judgment? Look at Israel's sins. Look at their rebellion. They deserve it. God might well say, let Israel be given up as a wayward child. Let it be handed over to the enemy. Let it be destroyed like these cities of Admar and Zeboim were. Let it be abandoned as it deserves that Israel receive their full punishment. The arguments quite just for judgment. But then mercy comes in. And the argument of mercy and the heart of God says, no, I cannot do that. Israel is my child. I love him. I called him. I cared for him. 
He's mine. We've got that wonderful phrase there, my heart recoils within me. Or as the NIV translator, New King James translates it, my heart churns within me. You know what it is to have a churning stomach when there's a longing there for something to happen, when there's the anxiety and the love and all of those things mixed up there. That's what we see in the heart of God. That old Bible commentator Matthew Henry put it beautifully like this. He said, God is saying, they shall be corrected, that is justice, but not consumed, that is his love. Why does the argument of mercy win? Because he is God. He says, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, I will not come in wrath. Hosea was remembering, I'm sure, his own relationship with Gomer. When God told Hosea to go and take Homer back again, to pay that price of a slave in the slave market, could he take her back again? What would that mean? And no doubt he had that in mind when he was saying these words. Yes, God wants his people to come back again. And he will receive them. He will take them back because he loves them. He will always love his people. And nothing can change his relationship with them. Even when a parent has a rebellious child and they go and do all sorts of things the parent disapproves of and they have no contact with the parent, the relationship hasn't changed. It is still a parent and a child, and that parent will still be loving that child. The relationship hasn't changed, though the circumstances certainly have. Nothing can change God's relationship with his people. It is a father-child relationship. And don't we have here a lovely picture of what was to come so many years later when Jesus went to the cross at Calvary? A place where God's justice and God's mercy met. On the cross, God's justice was satisfied because his perfect son, Jesus, was paying the penalty for the sins of all those who would believe in him. The penalty for sin was being paid. The soul that sins must die, the Bible tells us. And the punishment for sin is death. Jesus had never sinned. He did not deserve to die, but he went there on your behalf and mine. That God's just be satisfied. The price of sin was paid. But how mercy wins. Because Jesus died, because he died in our place, taking our punishment on that cross, the sinner, you and I, can be forgiven. How God's love shines through at the cross. And because of God's love and mercy, he will never let us go. We're going to sing in a few moments. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. Why? For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. But we haven't quite finished yet. How is all of this fulfilled? Verses 10 and 11 show us, yes, the judgment did come. The northern kingdom was overrun by the Assyrians and the people were scattered all over the Assyrian Empire. The verses 10 and 11 finish the story. And looking to the future, says they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. 
When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, says the Lord. What is God saying? Yes, you must have the punishment, but my mercy wins. I will never let you go. And there will be that time when you will return again to this land, when my people will again dwell in this land. After the the return from exile, God's voice will again be heard. And look how it will be heard. He will roar like a lion. It'll be loud. It'll be strong. It'll be clear. God's voice will be heard in the land again. And the people will begin to return. And they're returning trembling. What kind of trembling, I wonder, was that? I don't think it was trembling with fear. Will God actually allow us to come back? I think it was trembling with excitement. Oh, we can go back to our land. We can go back to our Lord. Back to that place where we are his people, where he wants us to be. The trembling of excitement. And they're coming from all directions. Look what it says. His children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt. That was in the south. Like doves from the land of Assyria. That was in the east. And God says, I will return them to their homes, says the Lord. What's happening? The punishment has taken place. Mercy is winning. God's people are returning to the land. And they will again be there to worship God. What, I wonder, will bring a turning to God in our day? Surely when the voice of God is heard in the land, the voice of God can be heard through preaching, be heard through Christians having conversations with other people, can be heard through people's conscience, can be heard in, in so many ways when God's Spirit is at work and God's voice is speaking, people will then listen and hear and respond. That surely is the basis of our hope in the nature of our God, who is love, mercy, and compassion, who wants his people, wants people to be saved and to know him. And in the power of God's word, he's able to bring them into his kingdom. You know, if if you've never trusted the Lord, you can turn to him right now in repentance, saying sorry for the wrong things that you've done. And in faith, believing that Jesus died on that cross for you and that God will receive you. Repentance is not a very fashionable word these days, is it? But it's key to a biblical understanding of the gospel, that we are sorry for what we've done and we turn to God. I came the other day across what I thought was a lovely quotation on repentance from the old American evangelist D.L. Moody, who said, repentance is the tear in the eye of faith. I like that. Repentance is the tear in the eye of faith. In other words, when we are trusting Jesus to be our Lord and Savior, repentance is the tear that is sorry for what we have done that caused him to go to the cross. It's not something we can just go through as a kind of academic exercise. It must affect our emotions, our heart, our feelings. Lord, I am sorry for all that I have done. Please accept me. But if we are a child of God, let's remember he's called us. He cares for us. He will keep us because his love is such he cannot give us up. 
But if, like Israel, you and I know what it is to, to wander from God's path, his hands are reaching out to you in love, even this morning, to draw you back to himself. All you have to do is reach out to him, say sorry, and come. And he will not turn you away. We were singing just before the sermon. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose. I will not. I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Let's thank God this morning. He will never give his people 